This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Lawrence Levy discusses his new book, To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. Then PW contributing editor Liz Hartman explores the Miami Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do you got for us today, Mark? Well, we've got a new number one debut, and it is a cookbook, and it is a fan favorite. Ina Garden, Cooking for Jeffrey. Uh, Ina Garden, of course, is the Barefoot Contessa, and Jeffrey is her husband. We gave this a really good review, and this is here, that just recipes that she cooks at home. Pretty much everything that Ina uh, writes and uh, gets published uh, lands on the uh, bestseller list. Top five, this is at number one. And there are a couple more cookbooks here that I want to talk about, so I'm going to talk a little bit out of order. Sure, so, why not? Uh, so we've got Anthony Bourdain, his first cookbook in years, and it's called Appetite. Uh, and uh, it's it's a really wonderfully illustrated book. Stegman uh, illustrated it. Mm. Some great, just irreverent recipes in his irreverent attitude. Uh, and it's at number five, which is which is pretty big. Of course, he has his own imprint at uh, Echo, Anthony Bourdain. But this is his own book, and it's a lot of fun. There's still you know still his whole bad boy approach is in it. Um, so it's it's kind of got its own personality. Which is his. Uh, so next up, we have number nine, 100 Days of Real Food, Fast and Fabulous. Uh, this is by Lisa Leak. And this is basically easy and uh, delicious ways to cut out processed food. It's all about cutting out processed food. So this has been really popular at number nine. And then we have, going down a little bit, Sprinkles Baking Book uh, by Candace Nelson. And this is about the time where we're going to start seeing some baking books in time sure. for the various holidays. So, Yep, getting uh, ready for Christmas. Exactly, exactly. And that's at 17? And that's at 17. Oh, and then finally, uh, at number 24, uh, this is Dory Greenspan, Dory's Cookies. And this is a cookbook that... Uh, fans of Dory Greenspan, she's a big baker, uh, have been waiting for this cookie cookbook. And everyone I know has just really, really liked this. And this was one of our uh, best books of the year. So that, that's what we have with cooking. So now I'm going to go to some maybe non-food stuff. Some non-food, non-fiction. Non-food, non-food non-fiction. We're going to go with Tim Tebow at number four, Shaken, Discovering Your True Identity in the Midst of Life Storms. Tim Tebow, of course, is the uh, Florida Gator quarterback who went on to play for the Jets. And now he was just recently uh, flirting with baseball. He's best known for his Tebow Neal and his uh, Christianity. So that's at number four. And we do have a few, at least a couple Christian-themed titles on the list, as well as some self-help ones. So I'm just going to lump them together a little sure. bit at number eight. And Voskamp, The Broken Way, uh, A Daring Path into an Abundant Life, or I should say The Abundant Life. So, And, and this is just just 
allowing yourself to to see you know to discover what is abundant and what is abundant wholesomeness so uh and then we have it's kind of interesting it's not really self-help but this is pat conroy a low country heart reflections on a writing life and this is obviously a memoir but he talks about his writing life and about what has got him through it and his experiences as writing Mm -hmm. um and how that's kind of made him whole. So uh, there's that. And then um, we do have just going on another Christian theme at number 25, Timothy Keller, Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ. So kind of a Christian theme, though not really self-help, mm-hmm. but we're just mixing it all in there. And then I'm just going to talk about one more. And this was uh, Phil Collins's book, uh, Not Dead Yet, <laughs> a memoir. And this is something that just seemed to come out of the blue uh, and that we didn't have it in our announcements for music and we're usually on you know the stuff is usually sent to us but uh it's at number 13 uh and uh in the uh uh the the jacket copy it says phil collins pulls no punches about himself his life or the ecstasy and heartbreak that's inspired his music he was 11 years old when he saw uh the the beatles a hard day's night and that's pretty much uh what kind of inspired him to become a drummer so i guess it was ringo Starr. so that's basically what we have on the nonfiction list. Well, there's also a bunch of new stuff on the fiction list. Uh, new number one, we have The Whistler by John Grisham. Um, this is the first in a new series. And uh, this is about an investigator for the Florida Board on Judicial Conduct uh, who's looking for judges who bend the law, take some bribes, and otherwise do not live up to their yeah. judicial responsibilities. And, uh, you know, obviously Grisham's a big big name in legal thrillers and no surprise that this is number one uh, with a bullet with 124,000 copies sold in its first week out. Oh, wow. Wow. So a uh, very nice start for that. Uh, and then at number four, we're also starting to see Christmas books in um, the, the fiction listings. Um, all the big Christmas romances come out, came out in October and uh, you know, getting some mm-hmm. inspirational titles as well. Uh, this one is A Baxter Family Christmas. Uh, it's the first come in a new series about a familiar family who already had a previous series. So this is the second Baxter Family series by Karen Kingsbury. And uh, we don't have a review of this, but uh, it says that it combines the charm and holiday ambiance of the bridge with the familiar members of this fan favorite family. So um, small town, a little bit of psychodrama, a little bit of family drama, and uh, uh, a lot of Christmas spirit. Oh, great. So that's number four. At uh, number seven, Sex, Lies, and Serious Money, the 39th Stone Barrington book by Stuart Woods. And uh, it's a it's a thriller in an ongoing series. If you're a fan of the series, you'll want this one. Uh, and uh, in this case, it's, uh, Stone Barrington is uh, taking on a, an exciting new client who's uh, got some very complicated, messy stuff. Mm going on and uh these books are are full of uh lots of luxury labels and uh, as it says in the title serious money so you get to vicariously live that jet-setting life number eight the blood mirror by brent weeks um the fourth and final book in the lightbringer series um this is an epic fantasy series that's uh, been really storming up the bestseller list for some time weeks is a big Mm -hmm. big name and uh, yeah, this one wraps up the series uh, that began with The Black Prism. Uh, this is not a book to start the series with, but if you've already been following along, you'll be very, very eager for this conclusion. 
And uh, a little bit further down the list, another epic fantasy title is Hero, Homecoming number three by R.A. Salvatore. Um, he's been writing these books probably about as long as I've been alive, uh, starring the, the dark elf Drizzt Erden, and uh, I mean, that's that that name carries a lot of heft in certain fantasy circles these these books have just been going a long 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 time wow and uh, and they're still selling they're still bestsellers uh and uh, this one wraps up the latest trilogy in this particular setting but i'm very impressed that uh, salvatore has been keeping that series going for so long at uh, number five, we have A Low Country Christmas. It took me a minute to figure out that this was not related to your Low Country <laughs> right, book. Right, I was right, like, right. is this a tie-in? Is right. this like a simultaneous <laughs> fiction, non-fiction? That would be very clever. <laughs> but no, totally unrelated. This is by Mary Alice Munro. And uh, it's uh, Low Country Summer number five. Obviously, uh, no longer summertime. Now it's Christmas time. But uh, there's a, a lovely cover image of uh, a happy little Christmas tree out on the dock gives you the the vibe of it. And uh, the jacket copy says a wounded warrior and his younger brother discover the true meaning of Christmas in this timeless story of family bonds. Very feel good. Yeah. Warm hearted story. And uh, finally, down uh, near the bottom of the list, High Heat, which is the eighth Nikki Heat book by Richard Castle. And uh, this is a, another thriller, uh, this one starring NYPD Captain Nikki Heat, whose uh, husband, a magazine writer, has just been targeted by terrorists. So um, big, big thrills and excitement going on there. And that's what we have on the hardcover fiction list. All right. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. People and are I'm, buying despite the election. Oh, yes. Well, please. Or maybe because. <laughs> Give, maybe. Bring, bring us our escapism. <laughs> right, exactly. We need it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Lawrence Levy tells us about the triumph of Pixar. We'll be right back. I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Lawrence Levy in the office with us. His new book is To Pixar and Beyond, My Unlikely Journey with Steve Jobs to Make Entertainment History. Lawrence, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So tell us about this book, um, and I'm, I know everyone who's listening to this has heard of Pixar, but um, maybe give us a little bit of what your perspective of Pixar is like. Well, the reason, uh, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because I realized that this particular story about Pixar has really never been told. Sometimes people think that Pixar emerged as this storytelling utopia sometime in the 1990s and then Toy Story and all the other films appeared. But my experience of it, which began in 1994, was really very different from that. And Pixar was a company that was forged together through these forces that were beating against each other and it was very very hard very challenging and so that's uh that's the story in the book so what were you doing when you were recruited to come over and and help pixar out of its rut well i would i had been a lawyer in silicon valley for a number of years and then i left the uh, my law practice and i became um a chief financial officer of another high-tech company called electronics for imaging and i had been there for several years we'd taken that company public and uh, I literally got a phone call. In fact, that's where the book starts. I got a phone call sitting at my desk one day. I pick up the phone, and on the other end of the line is Steve Jobs. And he says, hi, my name's Steve Jobs, and I saw your picture in a magazine a little while ago, and I thought we'd work together someday, and I have a little company that I'd like to tell you about. And 
I immediately thought to myself, he wants to talk to me about Next Computer because that was his follow-on company that he did after Apple. And so I'm like, Next? But but Next had shut down its hardware business a couple mm-hmm. of years earlier. And so it had sort of had a the, the reputation around Silicon Valley was that it was not doing well, maybe even going out of business. And so I thought, oh, he wants help turning Next around. And then he's like, the name of the company is Pixar. And I was in, inwardly, I'm going, what's Pixar? And outwardly, I was sort of said, well, of course, I'd love to hear about that. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but that's how the, the whole thing started. So this was in 1995. About, yeah. Little, and um, so what, what kind of law were you, do, were you doing? Were you practicing? And what was it that Steve wanted you to do? What was it that you said he saw your picture in a magazine and you know, he knew you'd work together at some point? What was it that he was looking from you? Well, I did an uh, area of law called basically uh, technology transactions. I started one of the first technology transactions practices probably anywhere, and uh, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And this is representing kind of small companies, all little startup companies that are trying to do deals and break into do business with the, with the larger companies. And I had developed a reputation for being very good strategist in terms of structuring those kinds of deals and really understanding the businesses of the companies. And then from there, I had gone on and gone more deeply into business and become chief financial officer. So I had kind of a reputation for being good both on the finance business side and on the strategic side. And I think that Steve was looking for just that sort of combination. And so he checked me out, I'm sure, with uh, a few people and that sort of confirmed his views. And I think that's why he he probably picked up the phone, although I never asked him, but <laughs> just guess. <laughs> and and what was Pixar as a company then? You walked into what 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 was it? Well, it was it wasn't much actually. Would be the short answer. Uh, when I went into Pixar, I mean, I'll give you an example. When I started at Pixar, the shortfall every month for payroll was being paid out of Steve's personal checkbook. And so, you know, it was a company that was, um, you know, it had a low pulse. It was almost on life support in a way. It didn't have any kind of business or strategic direction. It had all of these projects going on. It made this sort of rendering software called RenderMan, and it made animated short films and sort of commercials, and it had this project going on called Toy Story. Uh, but none of that had sort of come together in a way. And so, and even physically, it was like that. It was, at a, I described this in the book, it was... At this, it was in the middle of nowhere as far as Silicon Valley is concerned. I mean, mm-hmm. it was in Point Richmond, California, which yeah. is, and it was across the street from an oil refinery, and the <laughs> building was kind of like a dumpy building. And so, you know, you would walk in there and you would definitely go, you know, there's just nothing going on in this place. You had to look sort of underneath mm-hmm. to turn over some stones. But you had some really skilled people working there and working on these interesting if kind of scattered projects. Well, yes. I mean, that's what I saw. I mean, I, I, I went in there when I interviewed there. Um, you start to sort of peer behind the curtain, so to speak. And I was like, wow, there's like magic going on in this building. I mean, more than skilled people. I mean, just, you know, absolute innovators in their fields. And so the very first time I saw Toy Story, which was about a year before it came out, it was only like three minutes of the film and it was unfinished and there were all these caveats about, you know, how, how the animation wasn't complete and it's blocky and there's no music and the voices aren't final and all this stuff. And um, But I saw it nevertheless and I was like, somewhere in this building, there is genius at work, mm. you know, and that's that's one of the reasons that, that I joined. I'm just curious, could you talk to a little bit about the technology of Pixar and what it was that they were doing and trying to set themselves apart? Yeah, well, basically... 
Pixar was interested, always interested in very high-end computer graphics, even when it was started. It was started at Lucasfilm originally, and that was the goal, to lead the way in high-end computer graphics, and which is essentially computer animation. Start, even if it starts out as special effects, it's basically you know animated digital characters. And so Pixar had basically invented the technology to do that. It had invented an animation system, and so... When you, when you saw people at Pixar working and doing animation, they were using, you know, proprietary software that took years and years to develop that enabled, you know, the digitizing of these complex characters and to be able to move them. It's very hard to create emotion in a digital character, you yes. know, because like, in this very, like, if you think of motion in a human being, you know, this, it's the subtle moves of the eyes, the subtle moves of the mouth and the face. Everything is subtle. And so, the the computer models to do that are sort of mind-bogglingly complicated, mm. and they had invented the the ways to do that. So um, you saw this little scrappy bit of Toy Story, and uh, you said that was about a year before it came out. Yeah. And when it came out, it changed everything. It did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what was? What well, we was didn't that? know that. Well, that it would, but it but it did. <laughs> yeah. what, what was that mm-hmm. like within within the company? I mean, were you all just biting your fingernails? Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, I think that. You know, everybody knew that it was sort of a breakthrough, you know, kind of film. But, you know, there's also that thing, you know, that feeling, first of all, that it's not good enough. You know, that it's the technology is still new. I mean, if you go back and look at Toy Story and, you know, there are things on there like trees and sky and skin and humans. And there are things in there and you look, you know, that, you know, you're worried that it's too crude, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of a thing. And, you know, is it going to be good enough? Will people accept the computer animation you know never really seen that before are people going to sit through 90 minutes of computer animation and so lots of questions and doubts like that and so it was definitely a a nail-biting experience well from 20 years on that those questions just sound ridiculous like of course yes of course yeah of course we would do it but it's like you know coming out with steamboat willie and having no idea what the mickey mouse empire is going to is going to become. Yeah, you have no idea. And and I have to say, you know, John Lasseter always used to say, and I think it's the creed that still applies at Pixar, which is that great graphics, great animation will keep us in our seats for two minutes. Mm. It's great story that keeps us in our seats for 90. Mm. And so I think the feeling there would be, you know, it doesn't matter what medium that you use, uh, it's story that matters. And, you know, Pixar lived by that creed, and that's, I think, why it worked. So, um, speaking of Steamboat Willie and the, the yeah. Mickey Mouse Empire, Disney was kind of uh, a, a major influence, um, sort of a negative and then eventually positive. What what was the Pixar-Disney interaction? Well, at that time, it, I would say that relationship existed on two levels. So, at the creative level, it was very positive. John and his team had mentors and collaborators down at Disney that was funding the film, basically. And um, they had a, an amazing collaboration, uh, a creative collaboration. But at the business level, the, uh, the business strategy, legal level, it was much more dicey than that because Pixar was under a very, very onerous contract with Disney that we, that I quickly realized we have to get out of this contract. Uh, we have no hope until we get out of this contract. So there was a lot of tension at that level. So you had this sort of multi-level relationship and, and what was the contract and and then later came an ipo but but what yeah. was the contract that was that was limiting and then 
how did it move? How, how did you move it to to an IPO? So the contract had the contract had been signed in 1991 for the making of Toy Story and two other films. And um, ha- had I known the true import or the true meaning of that contract, even though I was a lawyer, you'd think I would know. But had I really known, I can't imagine <laughs> I would ever have even uh, gone there in the first place. So you know, naivete is, is a good asset sometimes going into startups uh, because that contract, which was written in sort of the arcane language of Hollywood entertainment lore, you know, basically tied up Pixar for a very long period of time. I mean, three films could take 12 years and, Mm -hmm. you know, almost no amount of box office success would produce enough profits to build a company or take a company public or something like that. And, you know, I learned that it was not untypical for the large Hollywood studios when they're doing contracts with sort of new talent and untested talent to tie them up. It happens, now I understand, you know, it happens regularly, but I didn't understand it then. And it's certainly not a basis on which you could take a company public. And so uh, part of the strategy became, how do we change this contract? And uh, and that was pivotal, even going into the IPO and beyond. So what what were you thinking at this time, and how did you push the company in the direction that saved it? Well, I, I mean... Uh, Going in, I was thinking that, look, we've got these different technologies here. We've got film, we've got software, we've got commercials, and maybe we just sort of, you know, we we clean up all all of those and we start to grow each of those and they help balance the risks off of each other. That's what I was thinking going in. Two months in, I realized that was completely wrong. (laughs) Like completely. That all the little things that Pixar was doing, commercials, software, all this stuff had no commercial market whatsoever. There just weren't enough customers in the world doing that that level of thing. So no way to build a business there. And then I'm like, okay, what about this film business, which I didn't know anything about. So we had to start learning about that. And I begin to realize pretty quickly, you start to look at it, that pretty much every major studio who tried to make it in animation over the previous 50 years. And only one studio had succeeded, which was Disney. And Disney only succeeded for about five years, from 1939 to 1945, when they released Snow White and Bambi and Dumbo and those Mm -hmm. films. And then even Walt Disney realized that his company was always in dire financial need because he couldn't keep that animation engine running. Mm -hmm. So he had to diversify. So he brilliantly diversified. He goes into television with, you know, and he goes into film distribution with Buena Vista Distribution, and he goes into theme parks. So he does all these things to diversify. So no company you could really point to and say, there, there's a company that became an independent animated feature film company and succeeded. And so, but I looked at that and I was like, that's our only shot. Mm. You know, so you could say, you know, I don't know if it was brilliance or just a default strategy. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> this is it. This is your only shot. And, you know, if you're in a small boat and you're in a big storm and there's only one way through it, that's your shot, whether, you know, whether you like it or not. And so that became the direction we went in. Yeah. So how did your relationship with Steve Jobs change as things changed at Pixar? Well, you know, I'm not sure it changed terribly much. It was it was a very good relationship from the beginning. I mean, from the moment we met, we hit it off. We had a, a good chemistry between us and our relationship was sort of based on trust and working things out and collaboration. And so, um, and, uh, you know, that, that's captured also quite a lot in the book, which is this sort of continuous dialogue in which no one is trying to win or be right or be the winner, but sort of get to the right answer. And, 
Um, and so that was a, it was always a very refreshing kind of, you know, relationship in that way. And it stayed that way for many years. What was it like writing about him for this book? I mean, you know, after his death, not being able to go back to him and say, Steve, what do you, what do you think of this? Yeah, I know. It's a great question. You know, I, I, and the, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was I've told the story sort of publicly and privately over the years. And I kind of know it's a great story because, you know, I always get such a great response to it. And I'd even been, you know, talked to, asked about, you know, why don't you write it as a book? But I was never that inspired to do it. And a couple of things inspired me to do it uh, now. One of which was that in the aftermath of Steve's death, you know, there was so much written about him, right? The films, books, documentaries, you name it. And, you know, I could see that this story and Pixar was kind of an afterthought. Mm. You know, a lot of it is like, you know, he went there, he started at Apple, he got fired from Apple, and 10 years later, he's back at Apple. And I'm like, wait a minute, this th that what? thing that happened in the middle. Yeah, he wasn't just wandering yeah, in the you know, desert. Right, it was really important. <laughs> um, so I began to feel it was a really important, you know, both in terms of Pixar and in terms of the Steve Jobs story. And I began to realize that if I didn't tell it, if I didn't write it down, then... Um, they would never get told. And so so I did my very best to capture it to the best of my memory. And what I did to kind of check on things is that all the major characters in the book, Larry Sonsini, Skip Brittenham, Sam Fisher, Todd Carter, there's a bunch of great characters in the book. Uh, and I gave them all manuscript copies of the manuscript to read to sort of check it against their memories as well. And uh, so that was a you know, really helpful part of the process. Although, interestingly, I, I, you know, they gave me great feedback and you know where my memory you know had forgotten or they sometimes embellished a couple of things um but i had actually got it you know i didn't uh, they were really pleased and happy with the book they all loved it so so that was great we're going to take a quick break but don't go away book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com pw radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, who's telling us about the process of creating this book. Um, so what was your writing process like? You said you basically came up with this manuscript and then brought it to people for fact-checking. So you just... Well, I, there was a lot to just, just coming up with this manuscript. Well, so. So, so I realized one thing I... When I'd set out to write this down, one thing I didn't want to do was to sort of be looking back and say, you know, look at what we did back then. Wasn't it amazing? Uh, what I wanted to do was kind of like create a real-time story, like you're going through this with me, because it was really hard. And, you know, it's easy to look back now and think, wow, you know, he was at Pixar and working with Steve Jobs, and wasn't that a, so cool? But it, I guess you know, it was cool, but it was really hard, you know, and it was there were moments when I felt, you know, I just had made the biggest mistake of my life, you know, you know, going into Pixar, and I wanted to capture all that. So I talked to my... uh literary agent about that and he said well i have someone who can help you you know sort of do that and he put me in touch with jamie malinowski who was in the acknowledgments of the book and he's kind of a writing teacher writing coach and and i said look you know i i this was a thriller this story is a thriller and i want to make a thriller out of an ipo mm -hmm. uh you know this is like a team of people trying to climb mount everest and and i think you know so 
we started working on pages. I, I was the writer. I was doing the writing, and he was just like, you know, critiquing it and, you know, sort of helping to shape it. And at some one point, I, I turned to my wife and I said, okay, I don't care about the book anymore. I just want a gold star from Jamie. It was like being back in kindergarten, you know. Um, and then also, you know, my son is a really good writer, and he's also made a long study of story, and he's very good and very creative. And, and he was very involved uh, as well, giving me great feedback. And one point during that process, he said to me, he said, Dad, said, you know what your big advantage is in this, writing this book? I said, what, what is it? He says, you don't think you can write a book. Mm. So I'm like, now, is that a compliment? Like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what I mean. He said, it's because you're listening. You're listening to the people who are giving you feedback. And I said, well, you're right about that. Because I was sort of hanging on to everything they were saying, mm -hmm. you know, like a lifeline. And in some ways, I learned that at Pixar. You know, Pixar is built the same way. You have this sort of passionate drive of a film director or a story maker that wants to make their film. But then they have to go through this process of critique. It's famously known as the Pixar Brain Trust. Uh, and um, it's a painful process because, you know, the, the rule number one of the Brain Trust is, you know, leave your ego at the door. Mm -hmm. uh, because they're going to, you know, take apart your work. And that's really difficult, right, for any writer. Sure. And so... Um, so I learned the, the the value of that, and I think because I collaborated with people like Steve Jobs and and other people like that in my career, you know, I knew no, if you you have to listen, and so through that process, sometimes painful, sometimes less so, that's how the the book got written. How long did it take you? It took. A, I mean, it's been about almost two and a half to three years since I had the idea. I first did it as a talk, so I honed out the sort of basic lines of the mm -hmm. story which I which I originally gave as a talk and then and then I wrote the thing in in, in maybe like a little over a year. Wow. And where was your talk? I gave that talk at, at first at Harvard Law School where I right. graduated and then Harvard Business School and I gave it at Pixar. Oh, uh, and great. so Ed Catmull, you know, the founder and president of Pixar, invited me back there to give it. And he said, you know, we've probably forgotten this story, even at Pixar. And I had such a great response from those talks. That's, that was when I said, okay, let's commit to the crazy idea of putting it down as a book. So in, in, in writing the book, um, were there any surprises that had come about that uh, as you're, you know, jogging your memory or talking to others, anything that you're like, wait a minute, I, now I remember, or even having someone review your, your manuscript. Yeah. I mean, the, I was, the process of writing it definitely helps you sort of reconstruct the story and remember how things, you know, happened. And so, um, sort of, and it helps you also to see the big picture. And so, like, you know, I like seeing the arc of Steve's story in the book. You know, at the beginning of the book, in 1994, Steve hasn't had a hit in 10 years. Uh, he's being written off as, you know, potentially a has-been. He's put $50 million into Pixar and lost all of it. Um, and and uh, he has a pretty toxic relationship with the, with the company. Uh, spool forward a few years and all that has changed. Huge comeback, fifty million, you know, losses become a billion. Relationship with Pixar has really become, you know, very productive, very constructive. And so I could see these arcs, you know, sure. that that I knew about at the time, but in the process of writing the book, you know, sort of you know, you sort of had that that view that was helpful. 
I, I was just getting um, sort of directly involved with the tech world in the mid '90s, and I definitely remember people going, "Oh, next!" You yeah. know, writing writing it off, yeah. writing Steve Jobs off. Just well, you know, he had some good ideas. It's too bad what's happened to that's him. Right. That's and, right. And uh, it it really was a tremendous turnaround. It was. I mean, that's the the first chapter of the book is called "Why Would You Do That." Right. Because that's what people say. Why would you do that? Why, why would, would you, you go work for Steve Jobs? And, and why on earth would you do that at Pixar? You know? <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, at that point, it, it's funny to think of now, but there was nobody moving in, in his direction, moving yeah. toward him in, in his direction. Was Were you ever wondering whether your next paycheck was going to bounce? Um, well, yeah. Well, I knew he was good for it, you know, because he wouldn't have hired me, you right. know, otherwise. I mean, that would have been, you know, that would have. At that moment in time, you know, he would have gone the other way. So the fact that he hired me told me he was going to stick with this for a while, but but I didn't know how long. So you know, I knew it could be, it could have been six months. You know, it, it could have been a year. And so if we didn't find a way to capitalize the company, I didn't know how long he would stick with it. But that's the risk that I took. Mm -hmm. So what happened with with the IPO? You you sort of came up with this idea that this was the thing that was gonna that was gonna save. Everybody that was going to say fix up. Yeah, again, a default strategy, right? If you want to build a studio, you have to go to finance your own films. If your films cost a hundred million or more to make, it means you need a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And if you need a lot of money in the film business, you can't go knocking on the door of you know Bank of America and say you know please let me <laughs> money. I want to you know put a hundred million dollars into a film. You have to go to the capital markets, the equity markets. So if you're a little company, that means an IPO. So in some ways, if you wanted to build the studio. You need a lot of money. You have to do it through an IPO, and so that was the shot. Oh, wow! And uh, and it worked. <laughs> it, it did work. Uh, you know, it, it it did work. We put a strategy in place in 1995 that worked for 10 years, all the way up to the time of the sale to Disney. So um, now Disney and Pixar have this very different relationship. How did how did the IPO and the independence that it gave Pixar kind of shape that? Well, you know, that was 10 years of Pixar being independent before it was actually acquired by Disney. So it went from being independent to being, you know, part of Disney. And, you know, I think that the relationship in those 10 years went through its ups and downs. I think there were, there were times in there where, again, at the business level, um, you know, the relationship between Pixar and Disney and Michael Eisner over there was, was, had some rocky, you know, times. Although to his credit and, and I recount this in the book as well, you know, the reshaping of their contract with Disney that really allowed Pixar to succeed uh, was orchestrated by Michael Eisner. And so, you know, that contract was enormously valuable and to, to Pixar, and I think he ought to get a lot of credit for that. Uh, but later on, you know, I, I, th I think things as that contract came to an end, then it wasn't clear, you know, how the companies were going to go forward. It sounds like you've really put a lot of effort into being very fair to everyone who is involved and making sure that no one sort of gets painted as like this one dimensional hero or villain. Yeah. What was, what was the impetus for that for you? I mean, what, what sort of made that like one of the driving principles behind how you wrote the book? Well, I've always felt that, you know, I, I, I've always sort of lived by the philosophy, like humans first, business second. Uh, and so, you know, even when I was in, you know, in business, yeah. even when I was in law. And so, uh, and so that's just the, my approach to things. I mean, I, I, I think that most of the things that we see at all these companies, you know, they're the product of the work of a lot of people, you know, and sometimes we just see one celebrity or one person at the top and, you know, and that belies the, the, the truth of the effort that's being made. And yeah. so I've always felt it's important to honor, 
you know, as all the people involved, which usually turns out to be a whole lot more than you thought. So writing a book versus uh, working at Pixar, which one was, was more difficult? <laughs> well, you know, I left Pixar, right? I, I left Pixar eventually. I mean, I stayed on the board of directors. I went on a whole different journey. And as I also uh, talk about in the book, that's why it's called And Beyond, that right. And Beyond. But so I, I essentially, I gave up corporate life because, not because I didn't love it or didn't enjoy it. And I feel felt very proud of, you know, what I'd done in my career, but... You know, I felt I began to see it as kind of like a one-dimensional. You know, so corporate life is driven by sort of acquisition at all costs mentality. It's a very performance-oriented paradigm, and that produces a lot of great things—a lot of great technology, a lot of prosperity, a lot of amazing things. But it also comes with a lot of costs. So there's hidden costs that have to do with sort of stress and anxiety and how we feel about ourselves and. Uh, how we value ourselves, and I could see the toll of those costs, and so I was really interested in philosophy and religion and those topics, and so I, I left to sort of find out what my own movie would look like, and uh, and oddly, perhaps I found it in this ancient lineage of Buddhist meditation and philosophy, yeah. and and I felt that my hypothesis was sort of proven in a way, which is that. Uh, we have a lot of technology for building great products, but we don't use very much technology for building ourselves. And if we don't build ourselves inwardly, you know, life can be sort of pretty stressful. And so, you know, I think we need to marry the two, and not just be mm -hmm. so so one-sided. And so, so my life went off in that direction. And uh, in fact, the reason, the other reason that I wrote the book was because I had this insight uh, three years ago when I was like, I've been studying this philosophy called the Middle Way, which is a famous old um, uh, Eastern philosophy. And I could see, I suddenly saw, you know, I could use Pixar as a metaphor for illustrating the principles of the Middle Way, because the Middle Way is all about harmonizing opposing forces. And, and Pixar was all about harmonizing opposing forces. And so when I saw that, I was kind of like, now, that's a story I would love to tell. So I'll tell the whole Pixar story, but then I'll make this link. And and uh, that's why I called it to Pixar mm. and beyond. Well, that's wonderful. So uh, I, I feel like you've, you've got this book of philosophy in you now. Is that a, a future project? Maybe. You know, maybe. I think, um, and we'll see how this book goes as well. You know, the, the last part of the book is a little bit of a tee-up for that. I mean, it's a complete story in itself, mm -hmm. but... But uh, I don't go into it in detail the way I do with everything else. And but there is a whole nother story there that that I could tell. And so I'm thinking about it. I'm I'm just sort of picturing like this business philosophy book. It it would be wonderful if we could somehow marry the the sort of the drive of capitalism with seeing people as more than just human capital. Yeah. And I think we have to, because it'll continue to, again, it produces amazing things, but at a cost. And eventually, we'll have to pay the price for that cost. Mm. We are now to some degree. Uh, so I think we have to marry those two things. So I will keep soldiering on in that, <laughs> uh, in that domain. Has it felt very fruitful for you to move away from business and into that other sphere? Yes, uh, it's interesting the the um, it was challenging at first because it was like what's he doing like you know here I am literally at the pinnacle of my career you know I could have gone a lot of different places sort of dropping out to do this seemingly kind of weird thing and um, so um, but I did find like a whole sort of other dimension to things you know and um, 
And the rewards from that come in not sort of measurable things, you know, like fame or money or reputation or things like that, but, you know, connections and joy and the ability to sort of engage in and experience life. And now, you know, I started a nonprofit uh, called Juniper Foundation where we where we where we do that work. And there's I find, you know, for myself in these ancient spiritual traditions, there's unbelievable depth. There's so much wisdom. The challenge is how do we tap into it? Because the wisdom gets buried in a lot of cultural baggage, whether mm. it's Tibetan baggage or, or other Eastern baggage, and you get these things, and it's hard to get to the essence of it. And so I went on really on a journey that, that took me to the essence of it. And, and I, when I, I thought to myself, yeah, that's really worthwhile because it enriches life, you know? And so it's like building a, like another dimension into your trajectory kind of a thing that fuels everything you do. You can still make movies or do whatever you do, but I think you can do them with, with um, just much more harmony, much more ease of mind and joy. So, so yeah, I, you know, I did find what I was looking for. And where did the book fit into this? Well, as I said, the book is the bridge because the the final thing that made me write the book was to be able to link these ideas of this. This is a great thriller business story, but to be able to link it to these deeper ideas. And when I went out, when I took the book out, you know, it was very easy to get people interested in, you know, publishing a great story about Pixar and Steve Jobs and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but this is going to be in there, right? And my, you know, even the people, my publisher was even like, well, you know, it's going to be challenging to write that. You know, but we're on board because it's a fantastic idea and a fantastic story. And it was challenging to write it. It's only the last sure. mm -hmm. 30, 40 pages of the book, but it was was all pretty challenging to write. But that was like, you know, really took a lot of crafting. But um, but I, but serving as that bridge, so it's not just about business. It's about, you know, a life as well in the context of a business story, you know, kind of a thing. That, I think, is um, uh, the, the bridge for me. That's where it all, all comes together for me. We've been talking with Lawrence Levy, and you can find his book to Pixar and beyond in stores right now. Lawrence, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. That was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW contributing editor Liz Hartman talks about the Miami Book Fair. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs, and here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, director in the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW contributing editor Liz Hartman is here to tell us all about the Miami Book Fair. Hey, Liz, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So thanks, uh, this thanks is for having me. Oh well, thanks for coming on. So you've written a supplement to Publishers Weekly, which is uh, coming out on Monday, and so tell us all about this Miami Book Fair. What's going on with it? Well, there's lots going on. The interesting thing about the Miami Book Fair, which launched decades ago is that it started out successful. The very first year, it attracted about 50,000 people. Now, it attracts hundreds of thousands. Mm. And one of the reasons I think it's successful in doing that is because the mission of the fair is to involve all of Miami, all the communities, represent every little nook and cranny of the diverse population. So it's really a celebration of books in their myriad form for all. 
That's a great concept. So I, I guess I have to ask if it's been around all this time and it's so successful, I still somehow have not heard of it. How come it's flown under the radar? Well, it's fallen under the radar, I suppose, to us because it's so regional, mm. although it's one of the biggest events in Miami every year. Um, it really attracts a lot of celebrities and celebrity authors, both literary and, you know, just top-notch entertainers. Anybody who is even remotely related to a book wants to be in Miami. Again, because it's Miami, because it's generally at a time of year when most Northerners aren't visiting Miami. Mm. That's perhaps why it's under the radar. But the weather's but so great there in November. it is one of the oldest and most successful book fairs in the country. So it's happening uh, November 13th is when it starts? Yes. Basically, uh, the 13th through the 19th are special events, mostly evening programs with leading authors, cultural commentators, politicians, some of the people that are going to be uh, at the evening with programs are Maureen Dowd, Dana Perino, Bernie Sanders. Well, he's, I believe, over the weekend. Tavis Smiley, Trevor Noah. So it's a whole mix of celebrities who have written books and authors. Um, Geraldine Brooks, who is just a favorite of so many fiction readers, mm-hmm. is doing an evening with program as well. And, you know, I was there, I gave a couple of uh, talks there uh, over the years. And one thing I, re- I recall about it is a number of kids that I saw at the at the book fair in families, uh, at least the, uh, the the part, you know, walking through the mall, the outdoor mall of books. And it seemed like a very fram- family friendly uh, fair. Absolutely. There's a whole children's alley that is devoted to children's books and children's book events. And it really, truly, to me, seems like a brilliant way to get children around books and having fun with them from a very early age. There's a lot of activities surrounding books. There's a stage where stories are enacted. So it's not just sitting down for story time. There are a number of activities all day long on Saturday and Sunday that are fun for both parents and kids. So that's been a part of the fair for a long time. And a lot of what's happened this year is that things like the children's programming or the Spanish language programming just keep growing. They've always had a wide swath of population that they reach through different venues, but they're all expanding, which is a, which is a wonderful thing to see. Now, has um, has there been any shift in especially the Spanish language programming since the sort of general softening of the relationship with Cuba? Is that is that affecting things yet? Because I know that um, we Kevin Breyerman in to talk about this a bit. Um, PW is uh, trying to find ways to help Cuban publishers reach the U.S. and vice versa. And Miami seems like a natural entry point for that. Yes, although Miami has long had a vibrant cultural Cuban scene. So the Cuban aspect of the Spanish language programming is not all that new to the Miami Book Fair. What is new is that there are actual authors from Cuba who will be able to attend. And there's a whole new push for the entire Caribbean. We forget that there's a lot of different countries that comprise the Caribbean, Haiti, Cuba, sure. um, the Dominican Republic. So there's a broader reach that there will even be some Creole language mm. programming. 
in terms of Cuban, Miami's been at the forefront of that for a very long time. But again, this year makes it easier, and there are more authors whose books may have been represented in the past, but who weren't themselves able to come. That sounds great. And so tell us a few of the people who will be there. You already mentioned a couple. Um, what about some of the children's book authors? Well, Dave Barry, who, of course, will is sure to entertain both uh, parents and kids, will be there. Um, John Cheska will be there. The first graphic novelist to mm. be nominated for a National Book Award, Jean Lewin Yang, as well as other authors, including Lois Lowry, Victoria Aviar, just a whole host of really popular authors from toddlers to teens and beyond. And some of the authors kind of span that that range between young adult and adult. There's plenty sure. of general fiction, some of which is taking place in the young adult arena, some of which isn't, that will please everybody. Now, I'd forgotten, uh, do, do people pay tickets for this, and, and how do they get uh, into some of, the, uh, some of the talks and lectures? There is variance depending on the event, and it's important to check the Miami Book Fair website. The street fair, which is over the weekend, uh, on Saturday and Sunday, is $8 admission to get in, and I believe that children are less expensive or free, mm -hmm. but it's $8, which is a very reasonable Sure. And that allows you to all the street fair activities, Children's Alley, the Kitchen Stadium where they do a lot of cookbook events. Some of these special evening with and afternoon with programs do require tickets, some of which are free, some of which are $15, and I think one or two that are a little more expensive because they include a book. Um, and so in some cases, even though they're free, tickets are required for crowd control and those kinds of things. So it is best to check on the website to see what you need. One of the designs of the fair was to keep it accessible for all. As um, Lizette Mendez, who was one of the directors of the fair, has said to, to actually create, to have the lowest barrier possible for people to attend the fair. And that's why the pricing is extremely affordable. Well, it sounds like a great plan. And um, how much does the city get involved in this? Probably quite a lot if there's this big street fair section. <clears throat> the city is involved in a number of different ways. The Library Association is involved. It is run in part by Miami-Dade College, which has been involved from the beginning. Mm. Every major cultural institution sponsors some sort of event. It's really a fantastic coming together of the city, government, organizations, non-government organizations, private businesses, people who are interested in the cultural life of Miami really all come together for this. Well, it sounds like a really fun time. Liz, thank you so much for uh, telling us all about it, and uh, we'll definitely look forward to it. Great. Thanks so much for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with poet Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 